Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to The Messy Truth. For those of you who are new to the podcast, hello and welcome. I'm Jem Fletcher. I'm an art director, writer, photo director, and podcaster based in London. As regular listeners will know, we've been deviating from the Messy Truth usual format and chatting to some image makers who've been navigating the industry and doing the work for several decades, all on this quest to think about longevity in photography and how young photographers can build a sustainable career. It's been really fascinating to have these conversations and hear about these photographers' personal evolution what they've had to overcome and the moments of discovery they've had along the way. So today I'm excited to bring you Alex Soth. I first encountered Alex's work through his book Sleeping by the Mississippi back in 2004. And this is a series of images of people and places which evolved from road trips he took along the Mississippi River. And the project really brings together his documentary style and his poetic sensibility when he's trying to capture the spirit of a community. So we're now 16 years on from that project and he is one of the most celebrated image makers of our time. He went on to publish 25 books and have over 50 solo exhibitions around the world. He's also the founder of Little Brown Mushroom, a multimedia enterprise focused on visual storytelling and education. When we chat, we are a few months into the COVID-19 pandemic and work has stopped, shows are on hold, and Alec has been reflecting on his last body of work, the project I Know How Furiously Your Heart Is Beating. So I'm really excited to bring you this conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. The first thing I kind of wanted to ask you about is words, because words feel like they have played quite an important part in your process, whether that's through collaborations with writers, when you're making more kind of narrative-based work, or the imprint, or the blog, and now the newsletter, which I love. It's brilliant. While these kind of manifestations have shifted, words feel like they've been an important way for you to communicate your creative thoughts. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why those endeavors have been important to you. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I mean, I, I think I'm always in a kind of a wrestling match with words and with language because photography, uh, I mean, photography is this kind of pure medium of seeing and I'm always bumping up against those limitations and frustrated. And so I'm always doing things on the edges with it, with words, but it's always problematic because, because words can kill a picture and maybe, you know, maybe I should have just been a writer, but I don't have the skills. So, and I'm, and I'm not, that's not false modesty. Like I, I know enough writers and <laughs> I, just, I just know I don't have it. Um, <clears throat> and so this, this medium of photography 
suits me in terms of the the way it functions in the world, the activity of it. But in terms of communication, I'm always wanting to do more. And so that's where language comes in. But not spoken language, not like podcasts, for example, where I'm like, where I'm rambling. <laughs> but you've started your podcast. Notably, I uh, quit the podcast too. So, I mean, it wasn't supposed to be like a grown up professional podcast. It was supposed to be uh, this experimental journey and and just a way to play around with sound too. So, and, and so the idea was that you could listen to it as you fall asleep. But I am, you know, I'm attracted to pure sound. I'm attracted to language. Uh, you know, I have more expansive interests than just this medium of photography so yeah it feels like poetry is quite a big influence on you or that's kind of what I get the sense of from the newsletter but also kind of where where you've named projects from before yes many years ago well actually you know when I was in college uh I studied poetry and and I had a teacher who who really believed in me and got me published and but I always felt fraudulent uh it didn't didn't feel authentic to me. Um, and also I kind of disliked poetry or I found it pretentious. So for a long time, I, I read poetry because I thought it functioned in a very similar way to photography, but I, but it annoyed me. And then the more I read, the more I understood, the less that fell away. And, and, and now I really just purely appreciate it. And because I don't write it and I'm not involved in the in the market of it i can you know i i savor it and i love it but interestingly like poetry and photography i think they don't go very well together actually because they're so similar and so like a book of poems with a book of photographs it's a it's an odd match so that's one of these things that i'm it's part of this wrestling match that I've had o- over my career now, um, particularly with Little Brown Mushroom, where we we used to be involved in publishing. And the kind of mission statement of Little Brown Mushroom was to experiment with with language and and, and photographs together. And and I found that the more poetic the language, the less it worked with images. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think because they were kind of competing? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because they work the same way, they compete. Um, I did this uh, collaboration for many years with a a writer named Brad Zeller, and we did these newspapers together. And one of the one of the things that we figured out in working together is that we we both had to kind of strip away what we were doing in order for these two mediums to co-mingle. So I worked in black and white rather than color, less information. And Brad, he kind of used less flowery language, less adjectives, you know, more just the facts. And, and that way we were able to put these two things together, but it still was, was tricky. And, and the, the putting, putting this material out into the world is problematic because where does it go? You know, does it go in the literature section? Does it go in the photography section? And, and that's been a challenge as well, which is, which is kind of why at the heart of Little Brown Mushroom, the model that we had was the children's book, because the children's book is a way of putting, you know, usually uh, 
usually illustrations, but text and image together in a way that's quite natural. And, and that's harder to do uh, the longer and more sophisticated the book is. Do you think it needs to fall into a category, though? I feel like maybe when you, you guys first started working on the dispatches, that maybe was more of the case. But I feel like now you can kind of break the rules a lot more and there's less. It feels like that to me anyway. There's less kind of parameters yeah. that something has to be one singular thing. Yeah, I think they're, they're, that's true. But at the same time, I know a lot of photo book collectors that kept those dispatches, you know, sealed in envelopes and they did, wouldn't read them, and, you know, because it's a collectible and it gets treated mm. like that rather than like the paperback novel that you read. Yeah, so it's, it's part of it's a marketing issue and part of it is getting people into the language of the medium so that comic book readers know how to read comic books and they, they stop thinking about the form, you know? And, and so when you come to this, this new medium where these things are jumbled together, it's it's a bit of work just to get settled and to get comfortable. I've only got a couple of the dispatches because uh, I came to them a little late, but I love them. I treat them like mm -hmm. books that you go back to. I still put them back in the plastic case because I'm that person as well. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I always refer to them and share them with people that I mentor because I just think they're such a great example of thinking about quality work in a different way, in, in a more accessible way. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, I feel like they're really powerful. I still really love them now. Yeah. Well, Brad and I, incidentally, he and I always wanted to produce a book of that material that that goes into the more the literary category. So I produced a photo book, song book. Yeah. And there's there's still some desire to do that, but it's complicated because then you're dealing with a whole different kind of distribution chain. And and because the, the idea is to share this stuff, you know. Of course. It's interesting because that kind of ties into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. I was interested to sort of talk to you about the last few years and the time you took off and how you've reimagined your creative process. Mm. And I know at the time it was sort of touted by the media as this crisis of art making. And I get a sense <laughs> from <laughs> a sense that that is really unappealing how they branded it to you. But I feel like right now it's kind of quite poignant to talk about that because I think a lot of artists and creatives are, f are feeling a crisis of art making now in this moment. And they're, you know, they're questioning their work and they're questioning, you know, what it means Um in relation to these bigger things that are going on. So I wondered if you could talk about kind of the origin of your questioning, your process and how that kind of unraveled for you. I became a photographer because I, I liked working alone and I, and I liked being creative. And then at a certain point, I wanted to communicate more broadly. And if you do that, you have to make compromises. You have to collaborate with all sorts of people money comes into the picture and that's just, you know, that's just life. That's just, uh, that's just part of, of dealing with the commerce of the world. And I wasn't wildly frustrated with that. What, nor, nor was this, I mean, you're, you're correct in saying that it was not a crisis. It was a, a kind of a separate thing that happened where I had this, you know, sort of spiritual epiphany of sorts and, and then just looked at my own activity and didn't know how it fit in to this new way of seeing the world. And, and basically, you know, I, without going into all of that again, but it was, 
you know, more or less just mindfulness and getting a new glimpse of the, the, the kind of ego involvement of art making and thinking, oh, I'd, you know, I'd rather just be mindful than ego driven. And, and so that led to all this kind of questioning about where I was going to go forward, how I was going to go forward. Then, you know, there was a long process. I, I, it's not that I took a year off. That was another thing that was, that was thrown out there. I just had, I just happened to stop <laughs> for a year thinking that I might, I might stop forever. And then, you know, things shifted. I, my, my own mental state shifted and economic realities came into play. And I started to, you know, work my way back into regular life. And one of the things that I had to come to terms with is that meditation and mindfulness and, and all that, you, you can go all the way with it, but it's like living in a monastery, you know, and it's, yeah. it's actually pretty privileged existence and and kind of unrealistic to to separate yourself that way uh for most people and it was for myself at at a given point and so i started you know engaging back in the world of commerce and all of that it is it is something i'm thinking about now of course because now here we all are locked in our homes and given this glorious opportunity to practice practice mindfulness and am I doing that? Not, not necessarily, you know, um, uh, I, I wish I had the mental state that I had a few years ago. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm like, like everyone, I'm constantly, you know, wrestling with what I'm doing. What does it mean? Is it valuable to others? And, and how do I share it with others in a way that, doesn't compromise it entirely. What was the experience like making the new work when you approached it from a different point of view? It was it was glorious at first. Um, yeah, I mean, after this, you know, this 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 period of about a year um, of not actively making work, and when I went back to photographing um, and, and and making portraits, I, I really felt cleansed and. And particularly of this uh, hyper ambition, so that I could I could visit someone for a portrait session, and if it wasn't feeling comfortable, I could just abandon it, no problem. Or we could just have a conversation, and there was no there was no pressure for me to produce. I I, I had rid myself of that, but you know over time. I could feel it come back in. <laughs> and, yeah. and another thing I should mention is that I, in that period, I, I stopped doing editorial work and work for other people. And that's also where a different kind of energy comes in. Cause then I started doing editorial work and, you know, when you're given an assignment to go photograph something and you can't just say, Oh, you know, <laughs> this isn't feeling right. I'm not going to do it. I mean, you've committed to doing it. You have to produce. And there's a lot of pressure to produce something powerful. So that sometimes means, you know, exploiting the situation or, or pushing people into uncomfortable places. And, and that's, you know, that, 
whenever I'm photographing, that issue starts in, in, to rear its head. I was going to ask you how you feel now the project's out in the world and, and having gone through that experience mm-hmm. that you just described and then integrating back, but with a slightly different perspective, like how does it feel now, all of that? Is it, does it still feel like a really important journey that you went on? You know, it felt, it, yeah, the, the journey felt really important. Uh, and particularly the, that refresh state that I was talking about, but yeah, the deeper it went in, into the finalization of it, the distribution of it, the interviews, the promotion, then, yeah, then it, uh, a lot of that stuff fell away and, you know, I'm proud of it, but, you know, I don't like, you know, I, I don't go back and I, I don't look at my own work, you know, like I'm not pulling, it, it's the equivalent of like a, a musician. Like I don't, I'm not driving around in my car listening to my CDs, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it's like that was that experience then. And let's move on, on to the next thing. Um, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it, but that's not, yeah, that's not uh, what I'm obsessed with. You know, I'm obsessed with moving forward. And like we all are thinking about like, well, what is this all going to mean? Where is this taking us? We don't have to talk about that now, but that's, <laughs> that's what's on my mind. It feels difficult navigating what's happening right now because you kind of want to talk about it, but essentially it feels like it's only just started. So it feels almost odd to talk about it. Ah, it's just, it's just incredibly difficult to talk about. And I, it's like everyone's having, it doesn't matter what industry they're in. Everyone's having the same conversation. It's just like, Mm. so strange. So surreal. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to be. There's nothing to say. I wondered when you're going through, change and thinking about stuff do you is that something you go through on your own or do you have like a circle of trust like a a support system that kind of you discuss your work with or are you much more kind of personal it's much more personal um yeah it's uh uh no I mean in terms of creative work and creative change I'm really I'm writing in my journal I'm talking to myself obsessively and that's the process and i like keeping it you know kind of private for as long as i can um and then at a certain point i have to expand that circle and then it gets wider and wider so now it's it's yeah now i have a therapist so i can (laughs) i can talk about it there i had a therapist for many years and and then she retired and it was quite devastating, you know. Um, and then I tried a, a couple times of starting uh, with new ones, but it's so hard because you have to go through the whole thing, you know. And then I was twelve, you know, and it's like yeah. and doing doing all that. So no, no, I have started with a new one. Uh, so time will tell. But I, yeah, I do think I think it's I think it's fascinating. Um, and I mean, what's great, of course, is that you're able to talk to someone, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's, they're not involved in any sort of way. So there's no, there's none of that conflict. And that's always, that's, that's why I like keeping new creative work so close to the vest because, um, you know, it's, uh, there are economic issues that people have. So if I'm talking to my gallerist, they're interested in one way. If I'm talking to a fellow artist, 
there's, you know, there's always a little like competitive thing or whatever, or people's own taste. And, and it's, it's just great to have a neutral party to talk to. I do love the idea. I mean, that was a podcast idea is that was actually the original idea is, is to have, a, you know, art therapy, basically you lie down on a couch and you just talk to someone. And then we talked about making a podcast of that, but of course that would be for an audience thus yeah. defeating the purpose of therapy. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, one particular image from the recent work with Kenny, because mm-hmm. it really stood out to me, that portrait. And mm. I wondered how you guys met and what that shoot was like. That shoot was in New Orleans. That was really late in the, in the project. The way I was working was, I was trying not to choose a place to go. So I would just, I would get invited somewhere. And so I'd get invited to give a lecture or I had an exhibition of old work somewhere and I would just go and then I would ask someone to help me find people. The making of of that book, which is called I Know How Fiercely Your Heart Is Beating, the the making of that um, was about a year. and, And originally it wasn't supposed to be a book. It was just supposed to be an exhibition of portraits. But as it developed... You know, I started turning it into a book and turning it into a project. And then I felt like I needed one more, you know, I sort of feel like I needed one more big trip and I, I, I hadn't been invited anywhere. Nothing was calling to me. So I, I went to New Orleans because it, it's just a, it was a place that I felt called to. And so then I went there and and I basically, you know, I found someone, you know, it's like the word is not a producer. I found a helper and someone who could introduce me to different people, um, a younger person. And, and, and that's, that, that's just the way it worked is, I, you know, I would say, you know, can you find someone for me to spend time with? And, and it's really that simple. There's not like, I mean, this is when you talked about language and text with this work, I was trying to, in many ways, get away from that. I was just trying to have a pure encounter with another human being and there aren't great stories. And this was one of the frustrations actually of, of supporting this work and doing interviews and whatnot is that, um, you know, a writer naturally wants a good tale and, and I just don't, like, I don't have a good one. Just a part, you know, just an individual human being. <laughs> and I spent time with them. And that's that, you know, which is, it's just, it, that's, that simple. that's the, yeah. And that's the, but that's the difference between a kind of fear, pure photography and a narrative photography. And traditionally I'm involved in much more narrative ish photographic practice. And I'm, you know, incidentally, I've moved back in that direction now. Because now I'm, you know, I'm fully, you know, back to my neurotic self and promoting my ego and, and whatnot. And, I'm, you know, and I'm, and I'm making work or was making work, uh, you know, along the lines that I had in the past. But in that that little window of time, yeah, it was just that. It was time with another person. There wasn't actually much talking in that particular case. Very little, actually. And that was that. It was a powerful photograph. I really, really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, that's, I mean, in the end, the power of a photograph 
is is that it's 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 a physical thing it's an energy and it's it's really not the narrative not the story but sometimes you can use use the architecture of words and, and narrative to make a place for those moments even though that project was an important process it sounds like for you and as you mm-hmm. said now you're focusing more on kind of narrative-ish based work again do you mm-hmm. feel like the narrative was missing from that project for you personally when you look back on it do you feel like something was missing i'm not critical of it because i'm so fully aware of what it how it functioned but i think it's it's an outlier of of everything that i've done but then i've done a lot of outliers and, and lots of things that people haven't seen um but if someone's talking about my work in 20 years, it's probably not the first thing they're going to talk about. And then that's fine. You know, that's fine. It's interesting talking about kind of the relationship with the subject and how it was, and you said this before, kind of how it was kind of ego driven, maybe, or you've described it as predatory in interviews before. Mm-hmm. And then obviously that body of work was more about kind of surrendering and kind of seems feels like kind of the vulnerability and just kind of going with the flow, I guess, in in the simplest way of explaining Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. It's not criminal behavior, right? So (laughs) to like manipulate, to make a, to make a more powerful portrait, but it's, it sometimes makes me feel queasy a little bit. Um, And so I go through, yeah, I, I go through different stages with it. Now, before doing that book, I had done this, very experimental project in a gallery in which I spent time with people um, one-on-one and no audience. And we would just play together. It was this project involving seesaws and it was just a crazy, I was in a crazy state of mind, but there I had zero expectation, zero desire to capitalize on this in any sort of way. And I had incredible encounters which then could not be shared <laughs> with a broader public. And so then in the making of the, that Furiously work, I was way more open, but clearly I still had more power, more control. And I, and I was aware of that. I, you know, I thought of it as like, okay, this is like dancing, but I'm leading the dance, you know, and, and I have more power. I'm going to try to use it you know, responsibly. So that's, and that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, you know, wanting to be open, wanting to go with the flow, but acknowledging that I have more power and just to think about that when I'm making work. I just, you know, I was thinking about this just last night, like, like so many people in the world, I was watching this Tiger King documentary. Um, Yeah. And, and there's this one, there's this one character in it. Who's the, he's like the ex, he's the ex-husband of the Tiger King and he's toothless and he's interviewed always with his shirt off. And it's, it's done in a way that, I don't know, I felt as a photographer, I felt like this is a really easy shot. You know, it's like, it's, it's kind of making fun of him and it's, 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 you want to look at it, but it's uncomfortable and it's, it's just too easy. And it's that kind of thing that I try to think about now. Like 
okay, let's not make the obvious picture that's going to get everyone's attention. But I should also say that if, if someone wants to go there with me, like there's a picture in that book uh, of this older man with his shirt off. And he was really, he was taking me there. He, that's what he wanted to give me. And so I was dancing with him and that, and that's where we went together. And, but I was not forcing him into this situation. And over and over again with those portraits, I was checking in with people to say, you know, and sometimes verbally checking in, but sometimes just, you know, through gesture and body language, like, are we safe here? Are we okay? Yeah, that's the way to think of it as a dance. But, but you know, Abaddon always talked about this, about his power. And, and I am aware that I have the power. You know, I chose the final frame. I chose which print to make, et cetera. Do you think about the power dynamics in terms of gender when you're shooting, being mm-hmm. a white male photographer? Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, more and more. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot has changed just in my relatively brief career, my awareness has changed as well as a lot of cultural awareness has changed. And yeah, I think about, I've always, and I've been speaking about this from the beginning. I'm, I'm, I'm really aware of how I photograph men and women differently, you know, gently, broadly speaking. And I have much more of an awareness now of racial differences. And in some ways that's, you know, that, the feeling of those dynamics is, is really tied into what portraiture is about. Because when, when you, a, a reader or someone visiting a gallery, approaches this photograph and you don't know the person at all, you're not having a real encounter with the real person, what you're encountering is in some ways your own response to this other person. And you're factoring in elements of race and gender and and all sorts of all sorts of other cues of class and um and what you perceive to be there uh the way they were raised etc and and you're confronting as much your own uh perceptions as you are confronting the other person (laughs) so that that, I, i find that's fascinating yeah yeah i totally agree and interesting as well because that's why i asked you about kenny because for me, mm-hmm. I hope this isn't offensive, but I feel like there's definitely in the past been a character in your work. There's been a group of people. It's not it's not one character, but there's definitely like an Alexo subject. Mm-hmm. You know how obviously we're all attracted to different yeah. types of people. And I think with Kenny, yeah. what what's so personal for me is being part of the queer community myself. Like I read that image as a really strong portrait of an incredible queer person and that's not something I necessarily would not that you haven't photographed queer people before but it's not necessarily something that I would go to your work to look for right and that's what I loved about it I was like this is a fusion of two different things that I'm really interested in that's yeah that encounter for me is what made that picture stand out so much in that project well thank you yeah so first of all on the like my kind of character or whatever the people that I'm attracted to. Absolutely. For sure. There's without a doubt, I have that. And so like when Brad Ziller and I traveled the country, you know, 
he could see someone across a, a, a football stadium and he'd be like, oh boy, you know, like that's who <laughs> Alex going to go to, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, cause I'm just, you know, I'm just, and I often compare photographic attraction to sexual attraction because it's just mm-hmm. like, it's just inside of me, you know? Um, and I, I have, or, or with this work, I did try to, relax that a bit and that and that was this pro like when i mentioned the um the seesaw project what i did in that case is i didn't choose the people at all my collaborators gallery and the choreographer i was working with chose the subjects and that's what in fact what i was trying to do with this new work is i would ask someone to introduce me to people and but what very often happened is so like the, the i i think about this when i went to uh, Poland, for example. Um, and I was in Warsaw and my person who was helping me there, you know, knew about my photography. And so was looking for people of the sort that I would want to photograph, you know, so they were looking for Alex of characters and that, that was actually a bit of a problem. (laughs) And so I, I was trying to tell people not to do that, but still to help me find people that, that had an energy about them. And that's, so it was, it, it was very complicated because you, you can imagine if, let's say I was asking you and I would say, okay, I'm looking for someone to spend time with and they don't have to be, you know, quirky or weird or whatever, but, um, but I want them to have a certain kind of energy. You'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I really agree with you. I think there's definitely something in this sort of innate attraction we have to other human beings. I guess it's the same as how the people we make friends with, the people we connect with, it's all mm-hmm. done. Yeah. You, know, you know, so much of it's done without communication, verbal communication anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to trust as a photographer, I have to trust that voice inside of me um that that attraction because that is that is my voice (laughs) you know that's that in some ways is what connects all of these things but at the same time to not limit it to that to so and that's what what can happen is that i it can become cloyingly closed so it's you know i'm not a single person on the market but i would not want to be like okay i i only like blondes that are you know, <laughs> five foot five. You know, like that's yeah. that's just lame. It's reductive. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about your time spent on the road because it feels like you do spend a hell of a lot of time on the road. And you've talked mm-hmm. before about hotel rooms being this really important creative space for you. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit mm. about that and if that's still the case. It is, sadly. I mean not today, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, it is. And I have, because I am a person who processes the world internally and not usually not in conversation with others. The hotel room in particular is this place to process the events of the of my travels more often than not these days i i'm not traveling alone so i often work with assistants and helpers and it's it's more collaborative in that way but then i return to the hotel alone and confront myself and and what's happened and and this is something i really love and this is part of the reason i have trouble 
working at home is because I don't have that that same kind of intensity of isolation and where I can really, really bear down on myself. And, you know, and so I've had my greatest breakdowns in life for sure in hotel rooms <laughs> and, Amazing. and they're, you know, it's, it's painful, but it's like, it's a beautiful process too. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it at all. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. Do you have to get into a state of mind to make work or is it much more fluid and sort of organic for you? I kind of I have to enter a state of mind or I have to I have to go to work. I mean, I have to it's I have to turn a switch on. So I'm not a person that walks around the world taking pictures in my head all day. You know, I don't go to the grocery store and see someone in that aisle and think, wow, wow, that's an amazing image. You know, I just, uh, I, I would like to be that way, but it doesn't, it doesn't function that way because the, the intensity of concentration, it's yeah, it's, it's on or it's off. And, and that's why I like traveling because I can keep that switch on. And I find that I can do it for a couple of weeks. I can maintain that that quality of intensity, and that's all I can handle. Uh, so I, I'm not a photographer that could ever do like a six month trip. I just couldn't sustain it. Need to recharge. Yeah, yeah. But I also need to leave, and 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 this is the problem. You know, right now being being at home, uh, there's to get that intensity of vision at home this is quite challenging for me are you still excited about assignment work yes whenever i get an assignment i get this like this buzz of excitement like uh it comes in they want me to go to tennessee to photograph you know blah 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 i'm like oh that sounds cool and then (laughs) and then i go and and then it's, you know, it's never as cool. There's always like 8 million problems that I face. And then I, and I complain relentlessly about it, but then I learn something through the process and then it happens over and over and over <laughs> again. Uh, so yeah, it's, I'm always thrilled. I'm always thrilled. I've gotten a little bit better of discerning whether or not it's, I'm going to dr- hate it once I'm doing it. Um, but yeah, I, I still, I still get a, a a real kick out of it. And, and what I love about it is, is the randomness of it. You, you kind of never know when they're going to come along. They seem to come in waves for me. And it's like the, you know, the photo gods out there, you know, suddenly say we need something. And, and then you're just dropped into these peculiar situations and it's, yeah, it's, it's fun. And, Horrifying. Horrifying is a strong word. Well, sometimes it is. Sometimes <laughs> it's like, how did I get myself into this? Because, I mean, I am so lucky as a photographer because I largely, up to this point, have made my living with my own work. So that if I ever like calculated the money I made on a self assignment versus an assignment someone else gives me, I mean, it's for sure I'm making much more of a living doing my own work. 
So surely you think that's the thing that I would always do. But, but sometimes I, you know, I do these very low paid demanding, stressful jobs um, in part because of the, the randomness and, and because of all of the learning that goes into it. And, and then I can bring that into my own work later. I'm curious through all the experiences you've had in the last few years, is there anything you feel like you had to unlearn from your ways of being before? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. Yeah, I feel like uh, the, the more, the longer my career goes on, the more unlearning is as important as learning. <laughs> and yeah, it's just knowing how to do things can be so problematic and being confused and making mistakes is where the growth is. So that's where, you know, starting a podcast or doing whatever, you know, like, and struggling, bumping up against stuff I don't know how to do is so rewarding. And I mean, a lot of what I'm saying is kind of cliche, but it's, but it's also true. And it's just, Unlearning is super important. And it's also, I, I find this true in, in talking to other photographers and, and with you and your podcast, um, being focused a lot on emerging photographers. I, I've had this experience again and again where I'm talking to, to younger photographers or even people that are just discovering the medium and I'll, I'll start saying jaded things and, uh, <laughs> and they've just like, you know, they're just discovering this beautiful new world and, and I'm stomping on it with cynicism. And we all do this when we're talking about, you know, social media and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, I think it's, you need to step back and remember what it was like when it was new and, and to come, come in touch with that newness. Um, so I feel like, yeah, every few years I have to tear everything down so I can get in touch with something with, with a feeling of newness. I'm curious if you um, pay attention to the work of young photographers. I remember being a younger photographer and thinking like, do these, do these older people, you know, does Robert Adams or, or Lee Friedland, or are they like up on what younger people are doing and, and being kind of like, well, why are those old farts, you know, not in touch with things. And now, you know, as I'm getting a bit older, I kind of see what happens. And for me, what's, what, what happens is that so much of my own process is in response, is in conversation with, with my own influences from when I was young and in conversation with my own work in a way and my own trajectory. So you, and I've heard novelists talk about this, that they're like, they're constantly, you know, like in their own sphere. And so it's, so I'm looking at other work, but I'm not, I can't say I'm wildly influenced by it. And I, nor do I really want to be, but I'm, but, but those historical influences continue to be there. But like, I, yeah, I find in terms of new books, like I'm about to um, talk about an, uh, a newly published book for my newsletter, but it's by a woman who made the work in the, you know, 1980s. And 
and I'm continually drawn to work from that period, but even if it's newly released. <laughs> so it's, yeah. you know, another way to put it is that when you ask people about their musical taste, their musical influences, so often it's from the music that they were listening to, you know, in their teens and twenties. Right. And, and do I listen to new music? Absolutely. Yes, I do. But it's kind of rooted. <laughs> it's in a, it's in a trajectory from those influences in some ways. So yeah, because I am what I am. I think it's quite powerful. You, you saying that, you know, you're focusing on your own sphere. And I think that's something that younger photographers could do with doing more. They're definitely the more successful ones out of them are, are able to do that. But I think now it's so convoluted and it's so easy to be manipulated by social mm. media and lose like half a day yeah. looking at what your peers are doing and getting really confused by the end of it about who you are and what you even like shooting. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's a really solid bit of advice for people. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I feel for people in that situation because when I... I, I mean, I remember in my 20s being so hungry to find out what's going on. And and that was, you know, you get it through magazines largely. And so I would, uh, you know, go to the library or, coll you know, collect magazines of all different, you know, art form, art news, uh, you know, photo district news, all these publications and reading them, you know, reading every single page and devouring this stuff. But it was like such a tiny, little, teeny, tiny fraction of the, of the kind of imagery that a young photographer would consume right now. And and that would be, yeah, it would be burdensome at a certain point for sure. To finish up, I wanted to ask you just a small question. But um, what matters mm -hmm. more to you, the experience or the the final image? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is such a profound question. <sighs> for me, it's the experience for sure matters more than the, than the photo, the final photograph. But if I didn't treat the final photograph with, uh, with respect and with care, I wouldn't have the experience, you know? Um, so the, the two are, are put together. Like, I, you know, I always make the analogy to, to hunting and fishing and it's like the re I, I mean, I'm not a hunter or fisher person, but, um, you know, presumably the reason you're doing this is for the experience of doing it. It's not so you can mount the fish on your wall. Right. But, um, but that desire to have, the biggest fish, the best fish, whatever it is, is what gets you out at five in the morning to go do it. And, and so the idea of just, um, of just going out on a boat <laughs> and just being on the water, like that would be this, that could be the same experience, but you wouldn't give it that sort of intensity. So I need that goal in order to do it, but it's about the experience. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. It's been so great to talk to you. Yeah, perfect. This is, it's been fantastic. And my battery is red and dying and my dogs are barking as you <laughs> maybe now hear. So it's <laughs> well-timed ending. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. 
You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.